0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival. My guest is Sheila Nevins, the head of HBO Documentary Films. She's worked at HBO for 35 years, longer than anyone else at the company. Now she's written a book called You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. It's a collection of short stories, some written as first-person memoir, some written as thinly-veiled fiction. Sheila says she's hiding behind other characters. She writes frankly about growing up, seductions, heartbreaks, making her way as a woman in a media world dominated by men, and aging. Sheila also produced an audio version of the book, recruiting an all-star cast of women to read her stories including Meryl Streep, Audra McDonald, and Glenn Close, backed by music composed by Michael Bacon. I conducted a previous interview with Sheila last fall on Pure Nonfiction episode 30, where we talked mainly about her documentary career. But I left with many more questions I wanted to ask. This interview was recorded on April 6th. It was Sheila's 78th birthday, and true to her workaholic nature, She was in her HBO office on 42nd Street overlooking Bryant Park. In her book, she talks about growing up in New York's Jewish community with communist parents. They knew Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed in 1953 for committing espionage at the height of the Red Scare. Sheila describes her mother as a card-carrying communist.
1: My mother was born into an immigrant family, both my grandparents were not born in this country. They were both born in Russia. And um, my mother was born here. And she had four brothers, none of whom went to college. My mother was the only one who went to college. And she went to Hunter with Ethel Rosenberg. Hmm. And she knew Julius indirectly. And I, in the building we lived, were the editors of The Daily Worker. And um, my friend Billy, whose name I can't ever remember vanished one day when I was a kid. And then Ethel and Julius were killed in an electric chair. And my mother always had me marching in Union Square with holding big Mm. signs up. And I thought every day I couldn't sleep. I think it was the beginning of my anxiety that they were gonna take my mother, put her in a chair, and they were gonna electrocute her. And um, so I lived that way for a long time, but she had other illnesses um, that competed with her, what I thought was fearful communism, although I was quite a bit older by the time McCarthy came around. There was a, there was the Red Scare a little bit before that, and um, I was just always afraid.
0: Now, your, your mother's politics, did they go beyond uh, marching in Union Square? Oh, yeah, my mother
1: was insane. My, we, had, we got a book. She was fabulously insane and always suffering, so it was a very unusual situation. Um, I've only recently begun to appreciate her. I was angry at her for a good 50 years because she was so strict and so—like, she was so aggressively righteous about her beliefs— I wasn't allowed to pick up boys. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to Sunday school. I wasn't allowed to have God. It's just interesting to go back because you can't go forward without back. So my back is my forward.
0: And she had this horrible condition, Raynaud's phenomena? Raynaud's phenomena. um, Which meant that her circulation was poor and she was susceptible to... To gangrene, gangrene and
1: amputations. But you can have rhinoids phenomena and not have the kind she had. It's like the difference between a basal cell carcinoma and um, melanoma. I mean, she had the worst possible kind. She was born with it. Um, and her fingers would always turn blue when I was a kid, and her lips would turn blue. And her, she was always cold and standing near the... Um, what do you call it, the radiator, radiator. yeah, we had radiators, standing in the radiator all the time, and I used to just pray the blue would go away, and it would, then it would get white, white, and um, it was pretty horrible. And then as I grew up, uh, the fingers would not get white and then pink again. They would just stay white, and then they would turn gray, and then they would turn black, and then they would be amputated. But the fingers weren't so bad. It was the arm that was the first. But when she died, she had very few toes, very few fingers. Mm. Um, Well, she had no arm, very few fingers on the other hand. And uh, she was totally disabled. She was cut up in little pieces.
0: And how old were you when she finally passed away? I
1: was old. I mean, I was probably 30. But it had been a lifetime of, of amputation and terror, and um, so I became very hypochondriacal about everything. Mm. You know, I used to think that a mosquito bite was terminal, uh, and I still, to this day, I'm pretty sure the sky must be falling. Um, well, there's a lot of evidence these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it simply proved what I always thought was true. The sky is falling, you see? So... Um,
0: and how about your father? He, he was oh, a bookie Oh, my father was like that.
1: right out of, right out of, my God, this is interesting, isn't it? My father was out of Damon Runyon. The first musical I ever saw was uh, Guys and Dolls. My father was right out of that musical. He was a gambler. He was a better. He too, he wasn't card holding, but he would stand on little um, cartons in Union Square Park and talk about Lenin and Trotsky. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, but not schooled in any way, and he wasn't home very much. And then my re- I had a very wealthy uncle, and he uh, he was my mother's uncle, my great uncle, and he got him a job in the post office, where he became known as Benny P.O., and that was his name for the rest of his life. Um, as a matter of fact, when he died, the bookie came to his funeral, and gave me a check because he had won, the Super Bowl. So he wound up a winner, right? That's right. (laughs) Even though he's on the floor of Lenox Hill with a heart attack, he wound up a a winner.
0: And your mom didn't allow you to have a TV set when you were young. No, I
1: never had a TV set. You think this is retribution?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Was that part of her politics? Yes. Yes.
1: Because I was supposed to do homework, and I used to watch the Ed Sullivan show at my friend Elaine's house on a tiny, you know, those tiny little, like a wooden box television with a little tiny box on it. I used to go across the street and watch a show of shows. I think that was on Saturday night. And at Sullivan, I, would wa- I was allowed to go across the street to Elaine's house to watch, but I was not allowed to have a television set. Um, I have many television sets now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I actually have one in the bathroom. That shows you how I've made up for my childhood. <laughs>
0: Sheila writes about her entry into the workforce in a chapter called From Cosmo to Ms." Here's the opening of that chapter, read by Lena Dunham.
2: I wanted to be a Cosmo girl. I dreamed of plunging necklines and men falling at my feet. Always sorry that my breasts were too small and that my nipples seemed inverted, I maximized by bra what nature had minimized. There was no Amazon overnight delivery then. I rushed my Cosmo delivery five days from the post office. A push-up-and-out bra. Does anyone use the post office anymore? I played seductive. High IQ. Barnard Degree be damned. I loved that I could bewitch them, those unsuspecting, dreary male work fellows, and then turn them into a Moore's as I played the office vixen. I would be lying if I said I didn't also dream of Helen Gurley Brown calling me up for a photo op. I was young, pretty, and game. Cover girl potential, except for my tits. I read Cosmo as biblical text. I lived by its psalms. I followed. I was pretty girl provocateur, buying attention with a too short skirt. How could I? Well, I did. Don't judge me unless you were there way back then and wanting a fair shot. Take Mr. Delore, a married man about 40. I enjoyed making his temperature rise. Yes, Mr. Delore, I would say. I'll pick up your tuna melt sandwich. Anything else? I'd milk the paws while sliding my office chair in his direction and watch him adjust his now-growing too-tight pants. I adored the notion that at any given moment some office jerk might be jerking off to me. False temptress trying to advance in the land of media. Flitting about town, buying skin-tight jeans, revealing Angora sweaters that plunged and itched. Plunge one over itch. I was at the first stop of the staircase, and I wanted to climb to the highest floor. Helen Gurley Brown assured me that this was the way to the top.
0: I asked Sheila what it meant for her to be a follower of Helen Gurley Brown. It meant
1: that um, I was to be sexy, and that I was to be alluring, and that I was to use whatever... uh, Sensual gifts I had to advance myself professionally, uh, because I wanted a career, although I didn't know what that meant really. But I, I mean, for Helen Gurley Brown, who had a career, basically her advice was seduction, and uh, I practice it. I read it as text, and I um, was a very flirtatious, not terribly moral, young woman. Uh, you know, I did.
0: There's a lot of uh, tales of seduction in the book, <laughs> or intimations at it.
1: Intimations of seduction. How do you know they're about me? They have different the, people's names. I guess they names. are thinly veiled to you because you know me, but to the world at large, they're tales of seduction. I wasn't a pole dancer, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and so you you describe that you know while you were. Following the text of uh, Helen Gurley Brown, you were aware that there was a feminist movement movement rising, but uh, am I right to say that you didn't initially think that it was for you?
1: I didn't understand it. i had did not have the vocabulary for understanding anything but really seduction and flirtation and marriage and children. I didn't know anything else. I didn't those were the four. I mean, I was not a good girl, but I wasn't really a bad girl. I was the girl at that time that was expected. And I didn't really pay any attention to anything else. It seemed, first of all, feminism was too close to communism for me. It was too close to a movement. And I had survived that movement, Hmm. barely, um, with the terror of losing... You know, my mother, Billy disappearing and not being able to pick up boys and outside, you know, when I was 12 and 13, just beginning to want to pick up boys. I couldn't have a God. I couldn't believe in anything. I wasn't allowed to have God. I mean, he was the opium of the people. I didn't have opium either, actually. But... um
0: so were you in a kind of rebellion from th- uh, th- not th- your consciously, Not consciously.
1: Yeah. Not in any way consciously, as a matter of fact, I didn't think of it till now. But the idea of a bunch of women together—my mother had a lot of women friends, and they wore—I um, guess they were feminists, but we didn't have that word. They were like Sophie and Gertie, and they would come over, and they would talk, and they would make placards, and they would go to Union Square, and I don't remember ever meeting Ethel Rosenberg, but I do remember Union Square a lot, because I remembered that she would give me things to hold and I would get splinters from the, from the wood on the placard, whatever it said, free the Rosenbergs, you know, uh, you know, down with McCarthy. I just remember, I didn't know what they really exactly meant, even though I was probably old enough by then to understand it. I was certainly 12 or 13, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to pick up boys and, and I wanted to wear lipstick and I wanted to get my ears pierced. And instead I was, you know, being dragged to Union Square Park. I can't even pass Union Square Park and the Amalgamated Bank anymore. I, just, I can't <laughs> go by there. I
0: can't. <laughs> it just I, brings I up I can't come out of that. Of... So
1: if I ever go to that the, the movie theater on 13th Street, I, can't, I just can't go by there. The bank and the – because we, we were at the Amalgamated Bank. That was where we had whatever money we had. And I just can't, I can't tolerate Union Square Park, even though it's full of vendors now and probably things I would want to buy. It has too many memories I just can't do it anymore. No. No.
0: So you describe in the book that there was a period where you shifted from the text of Helen Gurley Brown to awaken as a feminist.
1: Yeah. And I don't know that it happened one particular day. I think it was that I was so depressed and I was so unhappy. And I was, I couldn't get into that ballpark. I couldn't get where the guys were and I didn't know what I had done wrong. I thought maybe I had the wrong philosophy, uh, the wrong sort of sexual philosophy, the wrong flirtation philosophy, the the wrong sort of plunging neck philosophy. I was pretty, I was skinny, I was flirtatious. Um, I was arrogant, I was difficult, but I had no place.
0: I mean, you describe women in the book uh, sometimes referring to yourself, sometimes uh, using uh, uh, other avatars. Uh, as How do you know they're
1: avatars? Well, it I, wasn't even that word
0: then. <laughs> pseudonyms,
1: not pseudonyms, not always totally me.
0: You describe archetypal women of that.
1: Fine, okay, I'll accept <laughs> uh, of that archety- era. Archetypal who, is okay.
0: I mean, if I could put it crudely, were on a mission to to sleep their way up.
1: Absolutely. Without question. But... You know, it's not hard. That's why I so love Cat House and Taxi Cab and all those shows I've done, Eurus America, because if you know what you're doing, and I've had this discussion with feminists, if you know what you're doing, you're not necessarily being exploited. If you think of your body as for sale and then you go on from there to do something else, I never felt exploited. I felt I was exploiting the people that I was using because I felt... That I knew I was doing it. If I was going to give someone a blow job, it was because I wanted to get that job at the Job Corps camp in Catoctin, Maryland, and it was a snow day, and I knew the boss was there. If I was going to do that, it was with an M.O. So who was a fool, he or me? Was I degrading myself? I was able to love and fall in love after that. And those things became more meaningful. You know, it was ice cream without sprinkles. But it was my ice cream. I knew what I was doing. Um, I think when it's exploitation is when you're forced to do it. Mm. But I think I was, and you could argue that I was forced to do it and that I was being manipulated by society or whatever, but I didn't feel it, Tom. I didn't feel exploited. I felt like, fuck you. That's what you want? Get me to, to be an AP on that Job Corps film that USIA is doing. I'll do anything you want. Just get me that job. I don't know. Is that ambition or being subjugated?
0: But at some point you would realize that it wasn't getting you far enough.
1: Yes, but it wasn't because of the it. It was because I wasn't getting far enough. It wasn't because I felt exploited. I didn't know. I didn't have that word in my vocabulary. I felt I was exploiting. <laughs> I know that's strange, and I'll probably be killed by you know, other women, but in fact, the truth is... I didn't feel. Maybe I was too pathetic to feel exploited. Maybe I had too low self-esteem to feel exploited. Maybe I was too ambitious mm. to feel exploited. But it's true. I just, you know, I wanted to be Cosmo Girl. Um,
0: have you, you know? ever had conversations about this with Gloria Steinem? Or?
1: No, I didn't. You know, the thing about writing this these short stories was I never had conversations with myself about it till I started to write it. Because I made docu's. I suffered, you know, the sins of the world. You were looking ahead. Yeah, I think that's true. I didn't really look back. I guess that's good, isn't it? But I'm old enough now to look back because back is so much and there's so little forward. Um, Last night I did something with Liz Smith at a club or whatever, and Liz is 94 years old, and I thought, Jesus Christ, I hope when I get to be 94 I can be as sharp and as... You know? Amazing. 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 She wrote me a great note today. Yeah, she's, she's, she is a piece of ass, that's all. <laughs> there were three women there who she'll be nameless, who she had, had affairs with. One I discovered last night, and I thought, God, Liz, you really got around. <laughs> you know, listen, she played straight for 60 years of her life. So why couldn't I play crooked? Give me a break, Tom. Let me be crooked.
0: But... You described it, the, I want to get back to this moment where, where you did get on the, the bandwagon of feminism.
1: Totally. Totally. Not because I looked back, but because I was looking forward. I'd like to say that I had some revelation where I thought, you know, I wasn't getting, I wasn't achieving. And so I took the next bandwagon. It wasn't until I was in it that I believed it. In other words, I joined up before I was committed, if that makes sense, because uh, I'm I can't stick around if I'm not committed. So I joined up. It was ERA, and it was, you know, and I'd had a horrifying abortion, and, and um, I kind of joined up because I thought it was better for me. I didn't know that it would be better for anyone else. But then I realized the anyone else, the anyone else betterment reflected on my betterment, um, you know, that somehow joining up, for other people, was joining up for myself. Hmm. I think I got less selfish, more selfless. Although I'm quite selfish, I mean, totally. So, but I, I, uh, I became very committed, committed to the women here, committed to their success, um, just committed to women, and and understanding male abuse for the first time.
0: Well, you describe a moment in the book where you accidentally took home a male co-worker's check and, and who was at the same level as you and discovered he was being paid twice as much as you. But I
1: didn't take home his check. They delivered the checks, and I got his check by mistake, which means I guess he must have gotten mine. You know, you, They would come in a little cart around the hall. I, was, I didn't have a corner office then, but anyway, I had an office. Came and he gave me my check, and I didn't look at it. I just threw it in my bag because that was when we were carrying heavy... Uh, videos. Right. Remember when they were like two inches big and um, I can't remember where I was going. I was going to some studio. I don't know, threw it in there, threw it in a bag. Everything was heavy. I was always carrying heavy DVDs later on and now, of course, everything's streamed, uh, which is good. I don't think I could carry that weight anymore. But I was carrying these thing and when I got home, I had emptied the two-inch stuff. I think I dropped it at the HBO studio and there was just my check lying on the bottom in an envelope and I opened it because I always had to check it Always. Once you're poor, you always check the check, mm-hmm. you know. I know people go to the bank, and they, they then discover what the number is. I knew the number before I got to the bank. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, my God, this must be like two months in one. And then I looked at the name, and it wasn't mine. Well, that was, that was rough. I, was, <laughs> I didn't I sleep for a couple of nights.
0: How long had you been employed at HBO making half the salary of someone else at that point? This Matter, a matter of years. Seven
1: I years. Seven or eight years,
0: and how did you address that?
1: Oh, <laughs> with vigor, <laughs> with passion, with ambition, and with righteousness. I deserved his check. I didn't. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it, although he didn't. But I'm. In, the point really was, I deserved it. I deserved it, and I should have gotten it. And I was pissed. And uh, I made it clear, and that was before there were these harassment rules and mm. before there was women's, you know, whatever, in human resources. and
0: Before there's a vocabulary to talk about. There was no
1: about. vocabulary for it, but I knew it was wrong, and I was angry. You know, when you're angry and you don't have a group of people, you cry. When you have a group, you can get angry and not cry. And I think that was part of it, that having other women who are angry too, kept me from crying. And I think that makes a difference.
0: What were you able to do and how quickly did it take to... Re- so
1: quick. So quick because I was young enough to threaten exit. As you get older, exit becomes not a good threat because mm. you're so grateful. You know, you get in your 60s and your 70s, you I'm fuck, I'm still working, what's going on here? I should be on a walker and I'm, you know, running in the gym on a treadmill. Life isn't fair. Age is relative in some way, but it is. I mean, you're human. But um, I fought for that check, and I got it within about, I think it was like three months. And boy, was I excited. <laughs> and boy, was I scared. But I could at that point say, and maybe you can say it in any time, and maybe you should say it. I wouldn't say I leaned forward. I wasn't that brave. But I would say I, le- I stood upright. And I said, I, I'm not sure I believe the lean forward thing, I think you have to be upright and say this is what I deserve. I don't think you have to bend. I think you have to be straight up. And I'm a very straight up kind of person. And I just simply went to, I don't know if we had human resources, but I simply said, look, this was an accident. This is what I do. And I'm really pissed. And there's a lot of work out there for me. And um, I can't stay here if this is going to continue. And it changed, and it changed, um, but I never leaned forward. <laughs> and uh, I took a lot of Valium to get into that office that day, and a lot of caffeine. Uh, a great combination. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll be back with more from Sheila Nevins, talking about her book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales, after the break. Pure Nonfiction is coming up to its 50th episode. All of our previous conversations are still available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Last fall, Sheila Evans talked about her early days at HBO when she had an epiphany. We
1: had something then called total subscriber satisfaction, which was a number. Uh I'm really into numbers. Mm -hmm. I like to win. (laughs) And my numbers were very low. But things like uh, War of the Roses which was about divorce and screaming at each other, was doing very well. And uh, Jaws was doing very, very well. And I thought, well, why don't I copy those with real things?
0: You can hear our earlier episode with Sheila Nevins on episode 30. Go to purenonfiction.net. Sheila says she was inspired to write her book, after meeting Larry Kramer, the playwright known for his relentless activism around AIDS and his confrontational politics.
1: So HBO was doing The Normal Heart. I have a difficult boss at the time. He tells me we should do a uh, 20-minute behind-the-scenes on Kramer. And I take home Faggot. I take home a couple of his plays, and I realize this is some great guy. First of all, he's hot. Uh, and second of all, he's true. And third of all, he's vulgar in the way that I like vulgarity. And he's kind of, you know, and I'm kind of the wife of Bath, of Docu. So I um, thought, 20 minutes, I'll go meet him. So I get his number, and he's in the hospital. And, and, and this
0: is um, when? This is how long ago? I
1: guess four years. Okay. Three or four years. No, four. Four years. And I um, get permission to visit him through, I don't remember how, Um And he's dying, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I've never seen anyone sicker. He's had a liver transplant. He's HIV positive. He's got all these machines. And, um, you know, I kind of arrive like a, I don't know, deus ex machina. I walk in, and um, I sit down, not uninvited. And I talk to him, and he's not quite with it, not quite there. He's very medicated. And so... I go back the next week. He's sitting up. He's like, come back. And he doesn't remember that I was there the week before. And we have this conversation. And he tells me I'm pretty. And he, you know, he's nice. And he's intelligent. And we talk about AIDS. And we talk about um, National Institutes of Health. And we talk about the film. We talk about ACT UP. And, I, like, I look at my watch, it's like two and a half hours, and the nurses are coming in and out, doctors coming and taking blood, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then two guys come in, he's going to go to physical therapy. I, I couldn't believe this guy was going to get out of bed. And he gets out of bed, and I leave. I say to Jackie when I come back, you're not going to believe this, this guy, like, he rose from the dead. He's, like, alive. So then I started to go a lot to see him. And, um, you know, he is... His then his partner. Uh, I'd meet him, and and I just got attached to him. Then I started to kiss him goodbye when I left. We would hold hands, and we started to sing show tunes. And then he had trouble hearing, so I got him an iPad and earphones, and we would sing. And then I, I can't explain. I just got attached to him. And um, I fell in love with him, really. And I do love him. And uh,
0: and he encouraged you to write?
1: Yes. Because I would—I had been writing on this website called Wow, Wow, and, you know, just little things like I once went to the Lincoln Monument and put an Obama button at Lincoln's foot. You know, I did crazy things. And I would write stories about that on this website. And um, I would read them to him loudly because he can't mm. hear always so well. And he would say, you're good, you're good, you should write, you should write, you're good. And then Will Schwaby, he would have these fascinating visitors um, and Will Schwab came and he worked at Macmillan. And then suddenly the agent called and I, uh, offered me a book deal. And I thought, all right, you know, <laughs> what's the downside? I'll check with HBO. I won't write about HBO. I'll just, you know, do true confessions in any way. How long am I going to last? So I did it. And um,
0: and how long would it take? When would you write these pieces? Ma- I
1: mean, as soon as I'm, I would think all day long about what I was going to write about that weekend. I did it on the weekend. And then I would think, how much do I want to admit? And then I would think, what do I care? You know, people have been admitting to me for years all sorts of horrible things. You know, I can't explain. People are telling the stories of their abortions. People are telling the stories of war. People are telling me all kinds of intimate details. And I'm like, you know, never telling anybody anything. I think that it was time to come out, so to speak, come out as an older woman, Come out as a uh, a person who'd gone through two periods from from really cosmo to ms, a person who had a child who was not perfect, uh, a person who um, was not necessarily uh, you know lived a very straight and narrow life, a person who was married, a person who pulled the tail off a hamster and took responsibility for it, a person who had had their heart broken at yale um You know, I went to all the right schools. I went to performing arts as a dancer. Then I went to Barnard, an English major. Then I went to Yale on a scholarship in the drama school. You know, that's not a postman's daughter and a communist. That's not the path. So I kind of, I wouldn't say I lived a lie. I lived silently Hmm. telling other people's stories. And then I thought, if Larry likes my stories, and he's so real and so sweet and so good, and everybody told me how awful he was. As a matter of fact, I told whoever told me to do this 20-minute piece, that I told them, he's supposed to be so cantankerous. I don't want to, you know, do this with him. I think him. only
0: if you were Ed Koch. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but I mean, you know, I didn't want to oh, have him. Oh, please, but, you know, so I went to meet him. I didn't expect that he would be a, uh, a pathfinder for me.
0: Sheila says the hardest piece for her to write is one titled Mentor Not, about a broken love affair when she was a graduate student at Yale. It's written as a poem and read by Tova Feldsha. Here's a portion.
3: But this love punched me dizzy. It twirled me out of my day to day. Let's call him the love of my life for cover. Reality brought it down. This crash of a broken heart took decades to recover from. As I write 50 years later, it aches fresh. He took me to his home, an historic family house preserved in fancy Connecticut. I met his mother this last weekend of the school year. Please like me. I love your son till ever. I was nervous. The silverware had family initials. They said grace before dinner. I did not know the world I was in or the words they would say. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Please, Lord, save me. His father drove a Jaguar. We had a used Dodge Dart. Gilbert Stewart's paintings hung on the walls. Relatives from long ago stared at me. His family in the pictures nodded. No, no, little poor girl. No, 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 no. Not here. Not now. Not ever. I did not belong with this social elite. Wrong label. Wrong fabric. Wrong design. And then as his mother and I dried the dishes, good little girl pretty, little girl nervous, little girl me, Blue Book Mother, she asked me the question made of tradition and prejudice. Sheila, dear, she said, aren't you Jewish? Yes, I said. So, aren't there any interesting Jewish men at Yale who would be more suitable for you? Yes, yes, yes. She did say that. I hardly knew what to say. Was it just anti-Semitism? Was it a question with an answer? I can't remember if I answered. I choked back tears. I wanted to go home. I wanted to tell you reading this that I answered her. But I was too stunned to say anything. Numb, I remember. I could not feel. I'd like to tell you I walked out and walked away, but I think I smiled and continued to try the dishes. I took it. That, I remember. So let's say mentor who? She this blue-blooded archetype defending her uncircumcised son. She is my mentor, none better. This mother who deemed me unworthy has been by my side through accolades of accomplishment, praise for good deeds. Every trophy was for her. Every yes to me was a slap in her face. Every yes was a talkback. It said, I was worthy of your son. I would win for her. I received my prizes in retribution. Die, lady, die. Stick your finger in your eye. Tell your son that it was I. Feast your loss in my clear brown eyes. For I was not bold enough then.
1: Her son is High Wasp. Uh, uh, And I didn't know what that was because all the commies that I'd known, all my mother's friends, Gertie, Sophie, they were all Jewish. I grew up on the Lower East Side. Everybody was Jewish um performing arts, gay or Jewish, that was the choice. Um but I didn't I was grew up in New York where the population was so at least the It's pop- like you're living
0: a Barbara Streisand movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. I, and I've been told by many of my girlfriends that what do I think I'm in the way we were, you know, what are you what do you write that stupid story for? But it was true. Um but I wasn't I didn't have Barbara Streisand's nose nor her talent to sing. I was just a little girl at Yale trying to make a way on a scholarship, building sets at 3 o'clock in the morning in the drama school, falling madly in love with this blonde, blue-eyed Adonis, you know, and having a great year with him, and then going to his house and thinking, not thinking marriage or anything, just thinking forever. I don't know that I thought marriage, you know, commie daughter. Um, But uh, it stopped me in my tracks. It, it was, it was, I thought I'm Jewish. Now, of course, I hadn't been brought up to be Jewish. So it was a kind of strange accusation because I wasn't allowed to be Jewish. So then suddenly being Jewish.
0: That's a double bar. Yeah, it was, I didn't
1: mm. quite know what to do. He drove me back home to the dorm, Helen Hadley Hall at, in, at Yale. And I never saw him again. And I think that um,
0: and you, it took You, you carried that memory.
1: Yeah. I read him the story 50 years later. Wow. Because the lawyers at Macmillan said there were legal things I had to do.
0: (laughs) He did go to Harvard Law after all, so.
1: No, but you couldn't couldn't sue because the mother could not have been alive anymore. But it was a question of morality, not uh, legality. And the challenge of reading it was, I would say, vindictive and moral simultaneously, if the two words can go together.
0: So uh, so you had kept tabs on him. You knew how to get in oh, touch I knew with where him. He 50 was. Years later. I knew
1: where he worked. I mean it was a pretty well known law firm in New York. And he was kind of retired. I think he was emeritus. I don't know what I never know what that word means, although I'll probably get it soon. But anyway, whatever it was. Um I knew how to reach him. And uh, and I had seen him, you know, at events and things twenty years later, thirty years later. Bald, no more blonde hair, you know, nice lovely wife, you know, not not any and you know you get over these things. It takes a good 10 years, but you get over it. But I didn't get over her. Mm -hmm. I got over him, but I'd not get over her. And I knew how to reach him. And I thought, why not? Life is so short. This is one of those experiences that you, you know, for heaven's sake, I'm not going to, you know, have it in church. I might as well have it in my office. So I, um, called, left a message and didn't get a call back. And I was leaving about five days later from this office, and I walked down the hall, and they said, so-and-so's on the phone. I came rushing back, and I thought, do I have the guts to do this? I said, hi, how are you? You know, how's it going? You know, what's, what are you doing? He said, oh, talked about being old, you know, and I said, yeah, yeah, hi, huh, yeah. I said, you know, I wrote a book, and um, there's something in there about your mother, and now, let me just tell you, the Tova Felcher on the audio tape read the sto- read it. And Tova is a Jew's Jew, right? Uh-huh. So now Tova read it like, your mother, you know, she did this and she, you know, like Lady Macbeth, you know. Okay, so I wasn't going to play him that. So I said, I wrote this thing about your mother. I said, it's very direct about what happened in the kitchen and, you know, and... um." I'll read it to had you. Had you ever talked
0: about it at the time? Like, was he aware that that had taken place and that it had carried yes. that meeting for you? Yes. Okay.
1: Because he never called me and I called him. It was the time of a princess phone that shows how long ago it was. I called him and cried. But, you know, 50 years, your tears dry. So then, I think they do. Although when I heard his voice and I read him the poem, I— oh, They turn
0: into icicles in your heart.
1: They turn into icicles in your heart. I wanted to hurt him. I told you I wasn't nice. So I called him. I mean, so I picked up the phone. You know, I did... And then I said, I'm going to read you the poem. So I read it like Little Mary Sunshine. I said... She was at Yale, and the mother said, and the so-and-so said, and then this happened. And she said, aren't there any Jewish men in the law school? And I didn't say anything. And then he drove me back, and I never saw him again. And I left him at the gate and her at the gate. And, you know, I'm a little red riding hood. I was swallowed whole, but I came out smarter. You know, I don't remember the story exactly, but it was something like that. And there was his pause at the end, and he said, "It's all true," and I was a coward, mm. and it made me cry. Um, I have not had a bad romantic life at all, but it was it was sad. It was very sad uh, because no pe- satisfaction pe- pe- in that. Not at that moment. No, maybe two days later. No, not really. No, as a matter of the opposite, it made me think that I hadn't wasted a year of my life, that I must have sensed that honesty, but the inability to act on it, which I think a lot of us have. You know, we know the right move, but we can't make it for whatever reasons. But um, it wouldn't have worked. It it would never have worked. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that I was brokenhearted. Uh, And she was evil to me. I don't know that she was an evil person,
0: well, a lot of this book is about confronting age, and uh, age, and I wonder what you learned about that.
1: I think it's scary, especially because it's a youth-oriented culture today. I am seventy-eight years old.
0: We're speaking on your birthday. Uh huh.
1: And I decided, with Liz Smith yesterday, that I would no longer lie nor pretend that I was anything else. And that I would be a role model, that I would hang out with, you know, um, Gloria Steinem, older, Marlo Thomas. None of my women in my reading are under 60, really, except maybe Lena, certainly, and um, Jenna. But that I would, that, that I have asked people to tell things, and I have been ashamed of being old. Really ashamed. I was ashamed of having a facelift. What a stupid thing to do. Why didn't I just grow old? Last night I went to some event. This woman who had to be in her 80s, she said to me, I said, oh, you have such great lips. I didn't mean it. And she said, Dr. So-and-so, 303 East, 77th Street. She said, it hurts, they numb it, and then you get your lips back. You know, you lose your lips when you get older. Mm. They disappear They look like that. But, um... No, I decided to just fucking be it. You know, what's this big secret? You know, it's just is. What a lucky person I am. What a lucky person that I have a job, that I have ideas, that I can still remember almost everything except names, that I can, that I can feel well, that nothing's wrong. I haven't had a breast cut off yet or a foot or a finger. I mean, My mother died at 59. I've beat my mother by almost 20 years. So what am I going to do, feel like I have to be ashamed? ashamed anymore. And it's an incredible kind of freedom. How can you be a docu-person and be lying about how old you are or pretending? You know how hard I tried to get my birth date off Wikipedia? (laughs) You cannot imagine how much I was willing to pay and how hard I worked. And I could have done it. I had a devious, like, hacker connection to do it from another woman who said, don't let them say it. Don't let them say Don't let them put it there. You'll never work. And I thought, fuck it. You know? I'm sorry I'm old. I wish I knew what I know now then, but I didn't know it then. So maybe being old is knowing now. I don't know the answer. But I'm not, um... I can't tell you I won't get Botox tomorrow. But I can tell you that I'll know it doesn't make a fucking bit of difference.
0: <laughs> I want to thank Sheila Evans for speaking with me. Her new book is called you Don't Look Your Age, and other fairy tales. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Sound mixer, Kyle Murphy. Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at Powers. If you're in New York, come see our series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at the IFC Center. The spring season runs through June 6th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.